been looking each week at some of the Old Testament passages that lead us through Advent, the, the series, the time that we have that we began three weeks ago all the way through to Christmas. We've been looking at the prophetic word of God in the Old Testament where God's word is telling us to be expectant of something that's going about to happen, Ex- really expecting. And the people living in the first century at this time were expecting something. They were expecting something. And I can hardly wait for Christmas is about that level of expectations. Um, It says in Jeremiah chapter 33, all throughout the Old Testament, but in Jeremiah chapter 33, 15, it says that I will bring a righteous branch, a sprout from David's line. He will do what is right and just. This is Jeremiah chapter 33. I will bring this one. There was level of expectancy in Jeremiah's words. He will come from Judah and save, and he will save Jerusalem. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness, our Savior. These are the words describing Jesus at the time of his birth. We find also in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which is right here in our text in Matthew chapter 2 this morning, Bethlehem. You are the one of the smallest towns of Judah, but out of you I will bring a ruler for Israel whose family lines go all the way back to ancient times. I mean, we find in, Micah, in, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 4, the Lord will give you proof. A virgin is pregnant, but will give a son and will be named Emmanuel, God with us. It's exactly what Jesus is named, Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate, God himself coming in the person of Christ to be with us physically so that we might know him. This is Jesus. These are predictions. And there was a level of expectancy and on and on. And I could read all these passages and describe that. And there was a high level of Jewish expectancy all throughout their writings from the Jewish Apocrypha to the Pseudepigrapha. Every single one of their writings, the Dead Sea Scrolls describe, describe it as well in the rabbinical writings all the way even to Josephus in his writings, The Jewish War, describes and says that likewise found in their sacred scriptures the effect that at some time, that time, one from their country will become the ruler of the world. High level of expectancy. But here's the thing. You can expect something. You can have a high level of expectancy of something about to happen, but not be seeking for it. And what we find in our text is some were seekers and others weren't. And the Magi, specifically in Matthew chapter 2, were seekers. If we could say one thing about the Magi, it's this one word. They were seeking something. They were seeking. And what they found surprised them. And it should surprise us as well that the Magi are the ones that actually find what they're looking for. Are you seeking anything at all? I mean, really, let's back up a second and ask the question. I mean, what are you seeking after? I wrote several things down. People seek all sorts of things in life, don't they? Success. In fact, Inc. Magazine describes success as, as this, empowerment. It's empower, being able to empower oneself to find oneself's success. Um, people search for all sorts of things, whether it's money or power or control or notoriety or some satisfying experience, or a well-to-do family, or well-put-together family, or some source of secret knowledge, that once you find that, then it unlocks the key to life. I mean, 
Our passage this morning introduces us to a band of seekers that arrive and they teach us how to seek after something significant, the expectant one. What is most valuable in the text, we find these individuals lead us there and we learn three things about seeking. Whatever it is that you're seeking. I remember growing up, a prominent doctor in our community that was seeking after and, and uh, after a cure for cancer. And he devoted his whole life to this particular view of his, of, of his theory about the cure of cancer. I mean, I grew up in the area, the era of evil Knievel. And evil Knievel was like the original stuntman. And that was kind of the era I grew up watching evil Knievel jump on his motorcycle, various things. And he got into cars and, and, the, and the, the, the more he fell, the greater his notoriety gain he went up. In fact, the more cars that he put between the two ramps, the more famous he became. And crash after crash, he just became even more, more famous. Until finally one time he, he decided to jump the Snake River. He wanted the Canyon River, but they wouldn't give him the airspace across the Canyon River. He didn't have legal grounds to do it. So he jumped the Snake River and failed and ended up parachuting down to the bottom. But later in even Ken Evil's life, even a thrill seeker, the greatest thrill seeker in our, my generation, at the end of his life, put his faith and his confidence in something else, Jesus Christ. So what is it that you seek? I mean, there's all sorts of people that seek after all sorts of things. And in Matthew chapter 2, let's look at these seekers. And let's learn some things from these seekers. And here they are. <coughs> After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, these magi, it says, from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And king Herod heard of this. He was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. He gathers the chief priests and all the teachers of the law together and asks them where the Messiah will be born and and they tell him the prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 2 through 4. It says, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod called the Magi secretly, found out from them in the exact time of the star. Notice the star, the star. The star. The star keeps appearing in this passage. I wonder why. Where is the star leading? What's the, what's the, the value of a star in this passage? Be thinking about that. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child as soon as you find him, report back to me so that I might go and worship him as well. They heard the king. They went. They followed the star. They had seen it rise up and went ahead of them until it stopped and placed itself right over the child. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with Mary. They bowed and worshipped him. They opened up their treasures and presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so we have this passage, which is quite interesting, because you have lots of different individuals in the passage, don't you? You've got a king, you've got the chief priests, the, the, the controllers, the rulers of the religion of the day, you have this insignificant town, Bethlehem. You have Mary and Joseph, and the Luke account 
introduces us to these nobodies, these shepherds, and then you have these wise men that just kind of show up on the scene, and you got to be asking the question, what in the world are they doing there? I mean, really, this is a family birth here. This is in a nation, religious nation, or a religious climate of Palestine was Judaism. And so it was kind of a closed little system there. And all of a sudden, from outside, some total stranger, a group of strangers, just show up and appear into the scene. And Matthew puts them into this passage to teach us something extremely valuable about our faith. We need to be like the Magi because they were seekers. They sought after something. And we learn three things about these individuals. First of all, we learn that they are wise seekers. Second of all, we learn that they are unexpected seekers. And third, we learn that they are true seekers. We're going to learn three things about seeking. First, about wise seeking. We're going to learn something a little bit about... uh, um, I just lost my place. I'll come right back to it. I'm jumping ahead. Wise seeking, unexpected seeking, and true seeking. And those are the three things we're going to learn from Magi. But before that, let me give you just a little bit of context. Let's go back to the star a second. Let's go back to this idea of illumination. Let's go back to this idea of light and how that led these individuals, whoever they are, from wherever they came to this spot on the earth. What was going on there? Most people would say that they discount. I mean, I would say that most... um, rational thinkers, maybe scientifically based, non-religious individuals, intelligent people would say, this is an unbelievable story. I mean, really, it's a fantasy. It's a myth. It was made up by these four writers that were independently motivated to support their claims about this one Jesus they kind of invented. But we, we really can't discount the historicity of Jesus. I mean, Seriously, you can't. There's no way. You cannot be a rational, sharp individual and discount the historicity of Jesus Christ. It's impossible. It really is. In fact, it's a leap of faith. And yet within this story, this possibly reliable story, unbelievable story, you have this this account about these individuals coming from a pagan Gentile community into this religious environment to find the Savior, the Messiah. I mean, that's got to speak to the story. There's something odd going on here that you have to look at and say, they came from the outside to bring a level of reliability to the text, to the event itself. But the second thing that I notice is this idea of illumination. In fact, in 44 BC, it was said that when a king was either born or was buried, there was some kind of phenomenal thing that would happen in the sky at that time or at that moment that indicated this was a famous person. And so people kind of, kind of looked for that when a king was born. What would happen in the sky? Was there something unique that would kind of show them that this was an important king. In fact, 44 BC, Julius Caesar's burial. When he was buried, there was a supernova that was seen. In fact, about 7 BC, 
it's reported and witnessed by astrologers that there was a conjunction of stars, Jupiter and Saturn, and, and the bright light appeared about the time that Jesus was born, potentially. I mean, you've got to look at the information. You at least got to be interested in the scientific evidence that supports the claim that something is going on here in the text that we should be seeking. Does that make sense? And then I, keep, I kept doing a little more research and I discovered also that some Chinese and Korean astrologers back in five, they, they noticed a supernova potentially in 5 BC. I mean, this is about the time of Christ's birth. And yet, from a spiritual perspective, light is really important because in John chapter 1, verse 9, talking about the incarnate Christ coming in John chapter 1, you know, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In John 1, 9, it says, it says this, a true light enlightens every man. That's what, but the world lived in darkness because they liked the darkness better than the light. But Jesus was the one who would enlighten all men. In fact, in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. I mean, no wonder when C.S. Lewis is trying to argue the case for Christianity in England during, during the, uh, World War II on the radio, he wrote a, wrote a book as a result of his radio broadcast called Mere Christianity. And in it, he writes, if the universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Because in darkness, there's no meaning. We don't know that there's no meaning because you're in darkness. I mean, if you're in total darkness, you don't know what light is. But Lewis goes on to say, but with the light, it brings an awareness that there's no meaning in the world. Jesus came to bring meaning to a meaningless existence. That's why he came. That's why the star came. To illumine the fact that something powerful and unique is happening in this moment of time. A star shines over his birth. Will you see it? Will you seek after it? In chapter 2, verse 2, in verse 7, verse 9, and verse 10, we see the illumination. Something's happening that brightens our awareness. And here's how the Magi discover Jesus. First of all, they become wise. Now, this is rather ironic because notice what it says in the text. The King Herod's there. The Magi from the east come from Jerusalem and ask, where is the one born? We saw his star, it says. So these were individuals, magos is the Greek word. We're not sure exactly who they are. We probably, we probably, they probably are coming from Persia. And some indicate that they were astrologers. They were scientifically based these were, these were a, a cut above. They were intellectuals, the culturati of the day. I mean, they were well-trained and versed in science. But it also potentially refers them to the fact that they were maybe priestly in the sense that they were part of a religious affiliation in Persia. So there's a little bit of divinity going on or divination. They're looking, they're searching. They're searching something out, divine. But they're also looking at the stars wondering how they align and, and, and what they may lead to. And then we also know that they potentially were uh, uh, exposed to prophecy in the Old Testament from the various Jewish colonies that lived in Persia at the time that had the text in front of them, that had Jeremiah and 
and Micah and Isaiah. And they were reading from it. And so they were aware of it and they began reading it. And sure enough, they aligned the star with all their understanding, their logic and their rationality. And then these prophecies, and then they set out to go look for it. But here's the thing we learn about wise seekers. Wise seekers are those who realize they are not as wise as God. And what this passage is doing is it's turning upside down the wisdom of the world. See, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul asks the question, where is the wise man? Where's the philosopher? Where's the scholar of our day? I love the New Living Translation. It says, it says this. It says, um, uh, Christ uh, so where does, the, where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the debaters? And then in verse 24, it says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest human plans. God turns the foolish things into something wise and the wise things into something foolish. And you will never seek what you are learning and what you're seeking for and what you're learning about until you understand you are not smarter than God. See, it begins there that the wisest people are people that recognize you're not, I'm not as wise as God. And what happens with these magi, with all of their intellect and all their ability and power, they show up, follow a star, And there's the greatest wisdom of all, Jesus himself. And it turns wisdom upside down. Rick Warren wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. And in it, he he sent out a letter to all the great philosophers of the day asking what the purpose of life is. What's the meaning of life? And he gets all these responses back. And what what he reports is that basically they all say, I have no idea what the meaning of life is. But when you find it, please let me know. It's like, The greatest wisdom of the world still can't find the answers. And Paul alludes to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here's the problem. Here's why. Because the knowledge of today is going to be outdated by the next generation. Every generation figures out something new. I mean, you take the concept of sexuality, and 50 years ago, our understanding of sexuality is radically different from, it is, from, from today. And, and we're understanding it different based upon the experts and the sociologists and the psychologists, and everybody's weighing in and trying to help us understand sexuality today. But I guarantee you in another generation, it's going to be totally different. I mean, take the difference between men and women. 50 years ago, 100 years ago, how did we perceive the capability and the capacity of the difference between men and women? And how has that changed in the most recent generation? See, someone once said that what is not eternal will, is now eternally out of date. Because ultimately, we know that the great wisdom of the world is going to come up with another answer in 50 years. I mean, you study any branch of science and you will discover that. In fact, Becky Pippert was um, in a classroom. And uh, Becky Pippert wrote a book called Out of the Salt Shaker many, many years ago. Then she just recently wrote a a book. I think um, uh, Faith Has Its Reason. And so she was in a Harvard uh, class, taking a class called Systems of Counseling. 
and the professor is talking about therapeutic methods of helping a man uncover his deep hostility and anger towards his mom. And Dr. Pipper asks the professor, what if this man actually asked for help of how to forgive his mother? The professor said scientific psychology could not speak to such a concept. Don't force your values about forgiveness on your patient, the professor said. The class was shocked. And so he snapped back, if you guys are looking for a changed heart, I think you're looking in the wrong department. And Pippert says in her book, the truth is we are all looking for a changed heart. That's the point. So here is a classic case of where the greatest minds of our generation do not have the answers. You look at poverty and social inequality or anything else that we are struggling with as a culture and we're asking the question, where does the truth lie? And the magi lead us to the answer. And their wisdom gets turned upside down. All their great wisdom led to this one place. So God wants to use your great minds. God wants to use all of your investigation, all your studies, all the things that you learn, not to make you smarter, but to lead you in your seeking to something wiser. Let me give you an example. My son comes home from high school one day. He's taking physics C. He's loving the class. And, uh, and he said, Dad, I now totally, totally get why I believe in God. From physics C in high school. I said, well, what, how, how, what, tell me about it. He said, physics operates on the basis of certain undefined, almost unprovable in a scientific laboratory, laws. You can't prove them. You don't know where they come from, but, but every day I study how things work and they're based upon certain things that have to happen that physics can't answer. So there must be something behind all of these, what, what I will call inexorable laws of nature. And he believed in God. Now, he had a belief in God, but I'll tell you what, it was an absolute level confidence. It was, a, it was a seeker who realized that wisdom, his own wisdom, is not greater than the wisdom of God. He came to that new realization. Has that happened in your life? What are you seeking after? What are you using right now in your life? When I was a young person, I would read Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Classic text on prophecy that helped me understand the coming of Christ and who Christ is and shows me, showed me the Old Testament passages and prophecies that led me to believe ultimately that Christ really is who he says he is. So what is God using in your life? Have you had that kind of a moment? Where does your wisdom really lead? See, one of the problems today, Tim Keller says in, in his uh, new book on um, making sense of God, he says that the problem today with evil and suffering... People use this idea of evil and suffering against God, and now they don't believe in God because there's evil and suffering, because it must be God's fault. How do, a thousand years ago, a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, that was not the train of thought. Nobody believed that. There was still a belief in a supernatural, even in the midst of suffering and evil. 
the existence of evil. People still held to it. But today, and he said the reason why that has changed is because of the enlightenment. Because we have come to the point where we think we're so smart that now we know that there's something that's not right and it needs to be fixed and so we blame God. And he must not exist because we're so smart we know there's a problem and God can't solve it. So therefore, he doesn't exist. See, we've gotten so smart that it's pushed us away from God as opposed to closer to God. Here's a challenge. I don't know if it'll work, but I just thought of it. If you're in college, imagine this. Maybe go back to your college days, walking up to a professor. Hey, prof, I hear you talking against Christianity and all this kind of stuff. Let me ask you a question. Let's go back to the nativity narrative in, in the Gospels. What in the world... Are these scientifically trained culturati of the great Persian Empire doing in Bethlehem, bowing to a newborn king, Jesus the Messiah? Shouldn't it be the other way around? I mean, if Jesus is a crutch, if he's a fantasy, a myth, a prophet, but certainly not divine, I mean, don't we see the story backwards? I mean, really, Jesus should be traveling to them, not them to, the, to Jesus. All the evidence points here what are you going to do with that? In fact, I think science is bowing to Jesus in this scene. Now, there's nothing wrong with science and scientific inquiry. Science helps us explain what is. It cannot explain meaning. That's why Jesus came, to give us a greater wisdom. In all your great wisdom, you can only know so much. Never be afraid of the wisdom of the world. God is always smarter. The second thing I notice in this text is that they are unexpected. You would think that Herod, or you would think that the, the Jewish leaders of the day would be the first ones to the, to the scene. You would think they would be the ones, they're the ones pointing out the passage out of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that out of Bethlehem will come the ruler. I mean, they're reading the text. They're telling Herod, well, it's supposed to be in Bethlehem, and it's the ruler of the world. It's the Messiah. Well, these guys just showed up because they saw a star, and they believe that prophecy has just been fulfilled. Don't you think that they would go check it out? Really, seriously. And yet you have an unexpected band of pagan Gentile people coming to the scene, coming into the scene. They're now the ones seeking. They're the unexpected ones. And that's what happens all throughout history. The unexpected ones. We, saw, we see it all throughout the Gospels. Even John the Baptist questioned Jesus. Jesus, are you sure you're the one? I mean, it's not, he's in, John's in prison. It's not going well. And he asks the question. Now, we know John's faith is intact, but he's questioning even Peter questions in Matthew 16 and says, Lord, are you sure you're supposed to suffer? I mean, there's a lot of questions. And yet we find like a centurion. We find a Gentile woman sitting at the feet of Jesus. We see all the wrong people demonstrating faith. And here's the point about seeking. You must seek by faith. The unexpected ones are the ones that are willing to see the star, see the illumination, and get to it. See, they went on a 900-mile journey over several months to seek something out. That's a step of faith, is it not? 
I mean, some point in your life, you're going to have to take a step of faith to be a seeker. You're going to have to step over the line and say, I'm willing to go for it. I'm willing to figure this thing out. I'm willing to research. I'm willing to go further. And that's what the Magi teach us. Go seek out the child, it says in chapter 2, verse 8. And it's redundant. Go and acquire. Go and acquire. So go get this information and do it carefully. Go figure it out. Human ambition, willpower, craftiness cannot see the unfolding of God's worldwide rescue plan. They are blinded by their ambition. Only the eyes of people who are actively seeking the truth by an act of faith are open to see God's plan because God works in unexpected ways to bring about his purpose through unexpected people. And we've seen, I can tell you story after story. I mean, read some of the great scientists. Read Behe, Darwin's black box, a brilliant scientist who comes to the realization, sure, he believes in scientific inquiry. Most certainly, he believes in the evidence of science about the development of the world, even potential components of evolution. Not a problem. But what he does say is it's absolutely impossible for this thing to happen without a divine inspiration. Impossible. It's called the irreducible minimum. I mean, he looks at this concept of the single cell and says it's impossible for it to actually just generate itself. At one level, it's impossible for it to actually come together to become a life, life cell. Um, you, I mean, read Jürgen Habermas, who's a German philosopher in social thinking. I mean, a remarkable, brilliant, brilliant man. And, I mean, he's studying under, he's studying under Frank Horkheimer, who was, a, who was a Marxist who started the Frankfurt School of Critical Thinking. And here's a Marxist. Who, and by the way, he said he believed in the totally other, something totally other than what they can actually see. So there was an openness there. And then Habermas comes along, there's a philosopher and a defendant of the Enlightenment, and, and, and the reason, you know, and, and reason is the answer, and rationalism, and, and has defended that. And yet, when he looks at this concept of universalistic egalitarianism, or basically equal rights, so he's looking at a concept called equal rights. We all need equal rights. We all deserve, humanly speaking, equal rights. Where did it come from? He says it's a product of Judaistic ethic of justice and Christian ethic of love. It's like, now that's unexpected. From a man of that level of intelligence and education to say something so profound about the truth, a moment I love the story, and I read it last year, when breath becomes air. You read the story? It's the story of Dr. Paul Kalinthi. And Paul Kalinthi is a young neurosurgeon, and he finds out he has cancer and he's dying. He writes his memoirs. And so he wrestles with the concept of God. And here, toward the end of his life, he says this. If everything has to do about scientific explanation and proof, then this is to banish not only God from the world, but also love, hate, meaning, a world that is self-evidently not the world we live in. A brilliant neurosurgeon, scientifically trained, has an unexpected moment of realization 
that the world is not, not all that we see it to be. There's something else going on. It's the unexpected ones. It's the unexpected ones. I remember a moment in my life. It happened when I was at UC Berkeley. I was a follower of Christ in high school, joined, joined into a fraternity, so you've got the perfect storm going on there. I'm at, I'm at Cal Berkeley in this intellectual environment. The challenge is that I, you know, my major was political economics, so I'm studying Marxism. And so here I am studying the economic you know, theories of Marxism, and, and, and I'm in a fraternity with a bunch of guys that don't know Christ, and so what's going to happen? I don't know. My first quarter wasn't very good. And uh, we'll just leave it at that. But um, I kept my head on and, you know, and I knew, I knew who I was. I knew I was a follower of Christ, but I just kind of, you know, I slept. And, um, and then something happened. My mom was talking to another mom in the community, the Meek family. And um, their daughter was a senior at Berkeley and she was a runner. She was a star runner, Cal. And uh, so she called me up and said, our moms talked, and, and uh, they said it would be a good idea for you to go with me to Campus Crusade for Christ. So I'm picking you up Wednesday at 7 o'clock. And so in walks Susie Meek into the fraternity, and every guy stands up and goes, how do you, you're just a, you're a freshman plebe. How do you know the star runner from the Berkeley women's running team? How do you know her? I mean, she's famous. And in walks Susie Meek, and she takes me to Campus Crusade for Christ. At the end of the meeting... I walk right up to the director, and I say, hi, I'm Todd Windorf. Would you disciple me? His name was John Bruce. He said, no, but Keith Young will. And he turned to another staff member, and for the next year, I met with Keith Young. And he taught me how to study God's word and walk in faith. And then the next year, I met with John Bruce for three years, one of my closest confidants in life. Changed the trajectory of my life. One unexpected moment. And it will happen in your life if you're a seeker. Something will happen if you're seeking. Where's that moment? Maybe a new moment. And the last thing we learned about this passage, which I think is just absolutely fantastic, is notice what happens when they finally get to the scene. It says they go and they follow the star and the star leads them and the star this. And it says that they were overjoyed. Now that is really a lousy interpretation of what's really going on here. Exar Asan, Karan, Megalane, Sprada. I mean, four words compressed together in Greek that literally mean this if you interpret them literal. Rejoice with joy a lot vehemently. A lot of joy. I mean, they rejoiced with a joy that was mega joy and it was so vehement, it was overwhelming. I mean, we can't miss that in the text. The Magi come to a realization that it's not their wisdom, it's God's wisdom. That something unexpected happened in their life and they followed it by faith. They got up and they left Persia and they went somewhere else to go find something that they were looking for. And then in this one moment, they become overwhelmed and notice what they do. They turn around and go home. It's not in the text. What did they do? It's in, it's in every play we see at Christmas time. We see these strange, oddly-looking men with crowns on their head walk in and lay gifts at the feet of Jesus. Now, this is two years later. 
They're in Bethlehem, probably in a home at this point. Minor detail. But what do they do? They lay their treasures at the feet of the king. And here's the point. It reminds me of Matthew chapter 13. Remember in verse 44, Jesus goes through all of these great parables about the kingdom. And he says, the kingdom of God is like a treasure. And when you find the treasure, you go sell everything you have to buy the land so you get the treasure that's in the land. Did you get that? You found it. And what does it motivate you to do? Nothing is more important. You sell everything to buy it. You want that so much that this becomes more important. So it says in the text, they were overjoyed. They come, they bow down, and they open their treasures. It's, it's actually the word theduros is, is a receptacle of, of valuables. It also can be the same, same words used for casket, which is quite odd that the valuables go in both to this box and also in the casket, but maybe there's something there about the reality that at the end of our life, the most valuable thing that we are, who we are, goes into a casket. But in this case, it goes out. They open it, and out comes the treasure. And we see that, and it reminds me of Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, that I just quoted you. They find it and sell everything, and here's the point. When you find Jesus, you know you found him when. When you are willing to give anything up for him, you are willing to give up your greatest treasures. Nothing else compares to what you have just found when you're a seeker. A true seeker is one, and you'll know it. I guarantee you'll know it. You will know it. And at the moment that you realize what you have just found is the greatest thing, nothing else matters. You are willing to pour out of your life everything. And the greatest story of this probably ever told in literature was written in 1905. O. Henry wrote a remarkable short story. You know it? You heard this? It's remarkable, the gift of the Magi. I'm going to just end with this. You got, you got to hear a couple of these lines. And maybe you've never read it. Maybe you've read it. But you got to read it this Christmas. You really do need to read it. There were two possessions of James Dillian Young and Della Dillian Young in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been in his father's possession and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the airspace, the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out of the window someday to dry just to depreciate her majesty's jewels and gifts. Love the way it's written. Had King Solomon been the janitor with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his gold watch every time he passed just to see him pluck his beard from envy. I mean, there's the value of this beautiful hair and this gold watch. And in the story, Della reaches the point where she realizes Christmas is coming and they have no money to give a gift to each other and so she decides she's going to cut off her hair, sell her hair, go out and buy a chain for his watch. And in the meantime, James, as you know the story, goes out and sells his watch so he can buy a beautiful pearl combs for Della's beautiful hair. And you can imagine the scene when he comes home from work that night 
And out of the trance, Jim seemed quickly to wake. He enfolded his Della. For 10 seconds, let us regard with discreet scrutiny some inconsequential object of the other direction. $8 a week or a million dollars a year, what is the difference? A mathematician or a wit would give his Give you the wrong answer. The Magi brought valuable gifts, O. Henry says, but that was not one of them. This dark assertion will be illumined later on. And they have this moment of exchange of the combs and the, and the watch. And then it says at the end of the story, I've got to read the end. This is just beautiful. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of Christmas presents. Being wise, the gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give, give gifts, who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they were the wisest. Everywhere, they are the wisest, for they are the magi. Have you ever had one of those moments where you did something sacrificial because you know something? And you are so secure in what you know about your relationship with Jesus that it led you to do something sacrificial. I remember a time in my life I did that. Never told a soul. Decided, this is going to be one sacrificial act that I will hold in confidence with God. Just going to keep it between me and the Lord. I remember, I know what it was, and... I look back on that and go, I know why I did that. Not out of pride, not so that I could say I did it, but because I know who I am, because I found the one. And no treasure can compare. I wonder how that's going to change your Christmas season. I hope it does. I hope you, I hope you become a seeker. I hope you come to a new realization, as the Magi did, of where the greatest treasure lies. Let's pray. So, Father, we are wiser than we were before because the Magi have led us to a place of knowing who you are, Jesus, the great Emmanuel. So, Father, thank you in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father, that you have led us to this place. I pray that we would become seekers, that we would seek after you with all of our hearts and that in finding you, it would release within us our greatest treasures sacrifice on behalf of others. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a beautiful worship song, and, and then after the first song, I'm going to invite you to go to the communion table. But it's after the first song. And when we go to the communion table, remember, you're going to remember the Lord and his sacrifice. He came so that he might die, so we might have life. And so when you take the bread and you dip it into the juice, you're remembering the death of Christ. Jesus wants us to remember that, to be in solidarity with him, to know his sacrifice was the ultimate sacrifice so that we could live a life of sacrifice. So let's enjoy this time.